On this week's 51%, we recognize Women's Equality Day and speak with Noreen Farrell, Executive Director of Equal Rights Advocates, about just where gender equality in the U.S. stands after the fall of Roe v. Wade. People should be engaged in their employers. Do they really support working families? Do they really support reproductive choice? Also, Serena Williams is making one last stand at the U.S. Open before calling it a career. We'll look back on her tennis legacy. I'm Jesse King. It's all up next on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on. I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. August 26th is Women's Equality Day, commemorating the adoption of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that granted women the right to vote in 1920. We've talked a lot about the various women's rights movements and figures in American history over the past few months. Because, well, some would argue that it's been a rocky summer for women's rights. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was received by many, and again I say many because it's important to remember that there is a portion of the population that celebrated the decision, but many saw Roe's fall as not just a backslide of constitutional protection for abortion rights, but for gender equality as a whole. This Women's Equality Day may just have some people wondering, more than in years past, just how equal are we? It's certainly a question I asked our main guest today. Nareem Farrell is the executive director of Equal Rights Advocates, a nonprofit legal and advocacy organization that has been fighting for social justice, specifically through the issues that impact women, taking on cases related to unequal pay, sexual harassment and assault, and more since 1974. For Farrell, Women's Equality Day is a day to look back and be thankful for the progress of the past 102 years, but it's hardly a day of rest. It's a day in the year. It's a barometer for us to think through um, what progress have we made? What's the unfinished business of the movement? And for us to really um, spur people to take action for next steps. Where do you see things standing? Where are we and how are we doing as a nation in terms of gender equality? I think as a country, I would say that we're at a crossroads when it comes to gender equality. I mean, there's no denying uh, the progress uh, that's been made since 1920. Um, But I think the measure needs to be, are women in all spheres where decisions are made? Are we entering those spheres with the benefit of an equal education um, that's free of harassment and violence and discrimination? Are we not only surviving, but are we all thriving? Are we building and exercising our political power? And are we really advancing gender justice at all its intersections of gender identity, of race, disability, age, sexual orientation, ethnic origin? And I think on those measures, I would say that we've made the most progress, I think, in terms of basic anti-discrimination laws like Title IX, which prohibits sexual harassment uh, in education and and sex discrimination, and Title VII, which makes those same protections in the employment sphere. And I think that we've seen access in terms of the first of women in all spheres, but I I don't think that we have the numbers that we need to influence all spheres. And then certainly on all the other fronts, you know, we see the most progress for highly paid white women, but not for women of color, immigrants, gender non-binary, transgender students and workers. We actually are seeing backslides in progress. 
And so I, I think all of this was exacerbated and really revealed by COVID-19, um, which laid bare, I think, systemic inequities. But I think it's really um, presented some devastating clarity about the work ahead and greater recognition of that from a broader set of people in the country, which makes our job a lot easier as advocates and equal rights advocates. What do you consider, I guess, some of the biggest threats or barriers to gender equality right now? I know that as we you know, made our way through COVID-19, a lot of people were looking at you know, labor statistics, which of course were you know, very troubling with over a million women you know, at any given time leaving the workplace, um, women of color and others not coming back at the same rates. But we at Equal Rights Advocates decided that we wanted to kind of get beyond those stats and actually listen to what people are experiencing right now. And so we did a a really um, compelling study in 16 cities across the country of Black and Latinx family breadwinners, mostly women. And we asked them, what are they what are they experiencing? Um, and I think that those answers really sort of fill out my sense of our biggest challenges. They were incredibly concerned about workplace inequity and job insecurity, gender-based violence, a lack of affordable childcare, the incredible increase of debt and the inability to build wealth, which is so important to our power, um, including our political power, a general sense of voter disengagement. A lot of the places that we went mapped over um, places where there have been uh, you know, gerrymandering and other sort of um, obstacles to voting um, passed through by state legislatures. And then it all sort of came to a head with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, which you know, effectively deprives women the choice of whether and if to have children in this context of lack of support for women and particularly working mothers. And so, um, you know, I think that these create a real perfect storm that we hope will galvanize voters and workers and organizers uh, in the short term. Um, but they are they're substantial. And so we have our work cut out for us. I guess, are there any like silver linings to point out? Are there any areas or jobs or states that you're watching that are actually making progress here? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly one, for example, silver lining of what happened during COVID was this recognition, finally, that women are essential workers, that we've always been essential workers, we always will be essential workers. And I saw um, really inspirational power building among low paid workers, women workers in essential fields during COVID-19. A great example are uh, tipped workers in the restaurant industry who, um, you know, really as restaurants scrambled to keep uh, employees, um, they were able to leverage that moment to increase demands for increased wages, one fair wage, um, an end to the sub-minimum wage in places like Michigan. So um, I think there were certainly opportunities um, about the power and the necessity of women workers uh, during COVID-19 that we were seeing leveraged. But, you know, unfortunately, we have such a stalemate in Congress that really the rights um, and the power of women and uh, gender non-binary, non-conforming people depend on their zip code. And, you know, I don't think there's any greater example of that than what we're seeing in terms of um, the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade. And uh, the action will be in the states um, to protect that fundamental uh, reproductive justice rights. And uh, I think that we're seeing surprises in places as far as that goes, places like 
Kansas um, and, uh, and others that are, are quickly moving for constitutional amendments guaranteeing abortion access. I think there's gonna be a lot of surprises at the state level and a lot of opportunities as we sort of face this mounting threat at the federal level. I was going to ask, I mean, the overturning of Roe v. Wade was certainly seen as a big step backward by some. And so, like, I was going to ask whether you were surprised by that decision and where I guess you see the debate over abortion and reproductive rights going, going forward. Well, I listen, I wasn't surprised by the decision itself because it flows from, you know, five decades of work by the Christian right to really erode reproductive choice and other gains by women that allow us to stay in the workplace uh, and with progress and, and autonomy. But even as, you know, I'm a seasoned litigator, I've been before the United States Supreme Court, I myself was jolted by the reality that our hard-owned rights are very tenuous. Um, Under no circumstances should they be left to a single vote in the wrong direction on the U.S. Supreme Court. And so when people ask me, you know, why are you passing state laws when the federal law is great? You know, why are you in the court on that issue when the Constitution will protect us? Why are you so passionate about voter power uh, and an active democracy, you know, when we already have good electeds who are committed to gender justice? And I, I just I think it's because we have to be vigilant on all fronts at all times. Um, and it's clear we can no longer rely on the U.S. Supreme Court to protect ba- basic constitutional rights. So for for us and for the movement, it is back to the states. Um, of course, we will continue to call upon cr- Congress for federal legislation. Um, but, you know, as we look at, uh, you know, what's happening now and, you know, what likely will be a similar case after the midterms, the action is in the states, which is uh, both terrifying and exciting because there are so many states and there are so many forces that um, affect politics in the states. But we are looking at um, not just sort of the, the movement of constitutional state constitutional amendments to protect choice. Um, but um, also litigation in the courts to protect existing um, abortion access bills. Um, We're also um, heartened by um, steps being taken by corporate America to make sure that women have reproductive choices um, through their own employment policy, travel funding for those who need access care. But again, we, we, we see those as being fraught um, and, and maybe open to litigation as well. So it's going to be a very active time for both creativity, but then also, I think, important litigation defense. Um, and in all of this, the most important thing is for all of us to be exercising our political power to make sure that we have electeds in that ref, ref, you know, reflect our values, because it all, you know, a lot of this comes down to who our electeds are. And so I, I think this is a really important time to be as active as possible as as workers as well and, and voters. I agree. And I was going to ask, like, what do you think we can do to better promote gender equality? It sounds like voting is a big part of that. Are there other things that we can be doing to, I guess, further the cause? You know, I think that um, voting is obviously essential, but to the extent we can, we need to be continuing to collect data on the impacts of the Dobbs decision and other repressive legislation against transgender youth, et cetera. So we can be documenting the impacts and the harms on people just like you and me and um, our friends and our families and our communities. I think that's gonna be really important so that we combat myths about 
um, what these bills and what these kinds of judicial actions do um, to our ability to work and care for our families. Um, I think it's also an exciting time to get involved in policy work. Um, Equal Rights Advocates has a community action team. If you go to our website at equalrights.org, where we engage you know, people across the country, every single state on both state and federal legislation that impact uh, gender, racial, and economic justice. So it's a great uh, way to plug in through my organization and others on laws that will affect us in the years to come. People should be engaging their employers. Um, they should be making sure that they, at this time of the great resignation, when workers are having more bargaining power, to be thinking about what are their employers offer? Do they really support working families? Do they really support reproductive choice? Do they really pay uh, equally for the same work? Um, this is a time where I think workers can be leveraging their power to demand more of employers that really impact a lot of these important areas of equity in their lives. Women's Equality Day, of course, recognizes the adoption of the 19th Amendment, which came about after the women's suffrage movement. Are there any lessons that we can take from these previous movements as we head into this new territory? Fortunately, I think there are. I mean, I think obviously the road to women's suffrage in the United States was really incredibly linked to racism. Um, and, you know, as white suffragists deprioritize Black civil rights um, in their campaign, we know that it took uh, women of color, um, you know, up into the Voting Rights Act of the 60s and beyond to actually have access to polls without poll tax, literacy, literacy tests, and all the obstacles they had to exercising their political power. And so I just think that in this moment, it is very important that we continue to take a very intersectional approach to our feminism and gender justice and don't um, once again repeat historic patterns and leaving behind more marginalized groups within the women's movement. I also think that um, this is a moment of incredible student and youth activism. Um, I was happy to see the Biden administration made some progress on climate issues because that is very much galvanizing the youth who see climate justice, gender justice, racial justice as very linked. Um, and so again, really making sure that we're taking the lead from the youth who don't um, view our movement as a monolith they view it as a you know cross section of issues, and that's the way that we're going to build power across sectors. It's you know it's either all of us or none of us, and I think we can avoid some issues in the past by not getting ourselves siloed into identity politics, identity movement leading. Um, and I've seen the most progress in in our work from our ability to do that. We formed a women's economic agenda um, a few years ago in California, which now we're trying to replicate in places across the country, and we brought together advocates that worked on poverty, that worked on childcare, that worked on workplace justice. We showed the intersections between criminal justice and gender justice um, in the bills that we passed. Um, we were really expressed about the fact that um, policies in this country that strip assets from our communities, like uh, terrible fines and fees, they disproportionately impact women of color. And so by taking a really intersectional cross-sector approach to building economic security, we've built allies. Um, I think in the past 35 years, uh, in the past uh, five years, we've passed 35 bills and that are being replicated in dozens of states across the country by just taking that approach of getting out of our silos and building power together. 
On that note, I think it's important to point out that the conversation around gender as a whole is changing. Do you see a more gender neutral or I guess maybe gender inclusive stance playing out in these efforts and debates more going forward? I think our hope is that it's, we're seeing a much more gender inclusive conversation. I think the danger is of not recognizing the inherent power of gender stereotyping by moving to a gender neutral analysis. I think we need we need to make sure that we're very clear about a gender inclusive analysis. And that is obviously, you know, inclusive of people across all gender identities, but especially those who've been marginally, um, you know, historically marginalized like women, uh, gender non-binary, gender non-conforming, transgender people. Um, and so for historically women's rights organizations, quote unquote, like equal rights advocates, we're making that transition, you know, intentionally, wholeheartedly, and we're making sure that everyone can see our, themselves, um, including men, in our gender justice work, because it's only when we can see all of us in um, the ways that gender can be used against certain uh, parts of our community that I think um, we make the most progress. So I would say more towards a gender inclusive uh, movement and less of a gender neutral one. Well, Noreen, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. That was all the questions that I had for you. But for those who don't know, what is the ERA strategy? What kinds of work are you doing? And what are the programs and services that you offer? Well, we've been at this for almost 50 years. Um, and our core strategy has really been um, a comprehensive approach. So um, we have a national helpline. We provide direct services that help us keep our finger on the pulse of trends across the country. We also represent in litigation um, and other forms of enforcement workers and students who've been experiencing discrimination and other harms from like the smallest county courthouses all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and we're also the strategic architect of um, campaigns that are reforming laws across the entire country. Um, I mentioned the Stronger California campaign. We're also partner with hundreds of organizations uh, and a national campaign called Equal Pay Today. We were trying to close the race and gender wage gap. And most importantly, we're working on movement building. So we have our upcoming Equal Pay Days uh, for women of color, really highlighting the disparities that they experience uh, in terms of uh, pay discrimination. Um, we have Moms Equal Pay Day coming up, Black Women's Equal Pay Day, Native Women's Equal Pay Day, and Latina Equal Pay Day in the next couple of months. And we've been able to mobilize and touch over 100 million people through social media, through our action teams to take action to really help support closing the pay gap that costs us millions of dollars over the course of our career. So there's any number of ways for people to get involved. Just one more thing to add that it is the 50th anniversary of Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, which prohibits sex discrimination in education. And we have a really... Uh, powerful education equity campaign here at Equal Rights Advocates. We are activating a lot of students on an upcoming comment to the Office of Education on Title IX regulations, and we'll be engaging students across the country who want to join in and making sure that the interpretation of that important law to our schools is correct in these regulations. So if you want to learn more about that, please, again, follow us on Twitter, come to our uh, Instagram, um, our website, join our action team, and we'll get all of you that want to be involved, involved in our um, incredible work uh, for students and in partnership with students. 
Noreen Farrell is the executive director of Equal Rights Advocates, a nonprofit legal and advocacy organization focused on women's rights. You can learn more at equalrights.org. Women's Equality Day is August 26th. Noreen, thanks so much for taking the time. Great. Great to talk to you. We're going to switch gears now to talk tennis. The U.S. Open is currently underway. As of this taping, we're still working through the qualifiers, but the first official round is coming up fast. And one of the biggest stories so far is not number one, Daniel Medvedev or Iga Spiontek, but Serena Williams, currently ranked 410th by the WTA. Now, Williams being a big draw at the U.S. Open is not necessarily surprising. She's won in New York six times over the course of her career. But this Grand Slam is expected to be her last. In a Vogue exclusive earlier this month, the American tennis legend said she was, quote, evolving away from tennis to pursue other opportunities, namely growing her family. At 40 years old and with 23 Grand Slam singles titles, Williams is hanging up her racket in the very spot where she won her first tournament in 1999. I mean, it's hard to forget that. So that's the memory. And then the other one would be when they first played Venus and Serena, like prime time in the finals. And that just electrified sort of the women's game even more so, I believe. You know, took it to a whole other level, the two Williams sisters. Ahead of this year's tournament, fellow tennis legends and analysts John McEnroe and Chris Evert held a press conference to discuss the Open and reflect on Williams' retirement. McEnroe says he has many fond memories watching Williams dominate on the court. He insists his portrayal in the 2021 film King Richard, in which he appeared to dismiss the young Williams sisters, was inaccurate. Calling her an icon of icons, McEnroe says Williams changed the game. The first person I saw be really aggressive consistently was Monica Seles in the women's game. We're just attacking the ball and just overpowering people. Uh, Serena took it to that next level because she had this greatest serve ever, you know, better than a lot of guys. Unbelievable. You know, I would compare her in a way, the way she changed it to, you know, Steph Curry in a way, because Steph Curry's changed the basketball game. Everyone's shooting three pointers, but no one does it as well as him. You know, people try to match the power, but it, it's, it's, it took 20 years, basically, the better part of 20 years. And also, Serena's not 19 or 18, she's 40. It took that long for really people to catch up to her where they can match her. For me, she's been, you know, very inspirational off the court. I mean, on the court, it's obvious. Those are the tangibles. Her record, her ranking, I mean, that's all obvious, but the intangibles, the fearlessness in her has really impressed me. The fact that she has never set any limits. She has so many platforms from the body shaming to working moms to women of color and just empowering women. I mean, I think that message off the court to me and to maybe millions of people is more powerful than than even what she's done on the court. Everett notes that Williams has always done things her own way, making her a profound role model for female athletes, women of color, and athletes in general over the course of her career. Williams was never afraid to show her strength, stand out, or like her male counterparts, get heated on the court. 
Consider, for example, her on-court clash with officials at the U.S. Open in 2018. She was even bold with what she decided to win in, with a fashion lineup that included statement jewelry, denim, neon dresses, and of course, the cat suit. In 2017, she won the Australian Open while two months pregnant with her daughter Olympia. And while she hasn't snagged another Grand Slam since, she's made it to the finals multiple times, constantly pushing to match that record of 24 major singles titles set by Margaret Court. Together with her older sister Venus, the Williamses have drawn crowds and dominated tennis headlines for decades. Venus Williams, it should be noted, is a force of nature in her own right, with seven Grand Slam titles under her belt. She will also be at the U.S. Open this year, and while she hasn't mentioned any plans to retire, McEnroe and Everett say they wouldn't be surprised to hear a similar announcement from Venus soon. Which leaves tennis the sport with a somewhat nerve-wracking question down the line. What are they going to do without the Williams sisters? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like Tiger Woods not playing on the golf tour. You know, it's like a half or whatever. That's certainly something that's concerning Steve Simon and others and everyone, actually, because we play a lot of tournaments together. So that's definitely a big issue. We need to do a better job promoting these up and coming players. Obviously, we've been saying that for 30, 40 years. And clearly, uh, there's going to be a void, a huge void that's going to be tough to sort of overcome in the short term. We all know that life goes on and they keep playing and hopefully eventually there's other superstars that come along. But at the moment, you're absolutely right that it's going to be almost impossible, if not impossible, for the moment to be able to fill those shoes. For one more U.S. Open, at least, all eyes are on Serena Williams. Williams is set to play number 80, Danka Kovinic of Montenegro in the first round, with the possibility of facing number two, Annette Contevate, in the second. Everett and McEnroe say it's unlikely we'll see Williams clinch that record-matching 24th Grand Slam or advance beyond the first two rounds, even. Williams is just 1-3 this season. She's struggled somewhat since suffering a torn hamstring at Wimbledon last year. But you never know. Everett says the crowd will certainly be on her side. She's not playing that badly. I mean, I, I thought that last tournament, she looked better than the tournament before. I mean, she's gradually getting better and supposedly she's moving better now. And I mean, every week that she has to train is an added bonus because she can get up to that, you know, 80% level, I think pretty quickly. The problem is the field. The problem is everybody else is getting better too. I mean, when you look at the way Coco's playing, Mass and Keys, Halep, Jabert, I mean, I just think there's so many. Raducanu, you know, she's she's stepped it up. I just think there's a lot. There are a lot of good players out there now who, number one, aren't intimidated by her. Number two, know that she's not at her best. It's going to be tougher to get to that second week. While this might be her last tournament, it's clear we haven't seen or heard the last of Serena Williams. Everett says she's excited to see what she does next. As for advice, as someone who also retired at the U.S. Open in 1989, Everett hopes Williams soaks in every second while she can. Is there any way I would have liked it to be different? It was so different in that day. I mean, it's like I just waved and walked off the course and that was it. You know, I kind of avoided the issue of how I really felt about retirement, how it, it had been my whole life and and the feelings and emotions. I kind of avoided it the way I always, you know, I just put everything aside and I went out there on the court with trying not to really think about anything, having any distractions. So I guess I, I wish I would have been a little more in the moment and a little more engaged in the moment.
That's a wrap on this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks again to our main guest today, Noreen Farrell, for joining us this week. To learn more about our guests and the show, check us out at wamcpodcasts.org. You can find episodes new and old there as well, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Let us know what you think, and if you have a story you'd like to share as well. Until next week, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Jesse King, 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half He was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool Somewhere along the way At night and down the hallway I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool Take it. Where are you taking me? Sit